0: Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 200. 200! Damn, that went fast. I'm your host, Paul Reichoff. It's the season of hope. It's the season of stories that we'll never forget. It's the season of miracles. And it's the season to stay vigilant. Tonight, we're hearing from one of the Coast Guard officers who helped to pull off that remarkable Thanksgiving Day rescue of a 28 year old man who fell off a carnival cruise ship in the Gulf of Mexico. The man treaded for more than 15 hours. Rescuer Richard Heffley tells us when the team got to him, he was close to death.
1: I believe that the survivor had about 30 seconds to a minute left before we would have lost him. An incredible will to survive. Uh, He fell off a boat. He didn't have flotation. He didn't have a radio or flares. He just had to do anything that he could with what he had, which was nothing.
0: The man who was rescued, James Grimes, was airlifted to a hospital where he's recovering from hypothermia. 28 years old from Alabama, spent 15 hours treading water before he was rescued the day before Thanksgiving. He doesn't remember how he fell in the water and he doesn't think he was drunk. He did have a few drinks during the day before winning an air guitar competition. But when he woke up, he was in the water. And he survived 15 hours in the shark-infested Gulf of Mexico, treading water and eating floating bamboo. But he made it because of his own incredible determination and because of the Coast Guard that found him and saved him. Tis the season to remember all the people on the front lines this holiday season. When so many are celebrating, so many are standing guard, like our Coast Guard. And it's the season of miracles, including this one. This guy was treading water for 15 hours. He had a spirit to survive and a faith in knowing that help might come. The Coast Guard might come. Helpers might come. That's a faith people do still have in America and outside of America, in America, help will come in America and from America, help will come. The French remember that. It's why 80 years later, when French President Macron came to the U.S. for a state visit, he met with and thanked American veterans who were part of the greatest generation that liberated France. Because the French knew and remember, from America, help will come. The Ukrainians know that now. Billions of dollars, tons of weapons, billions of social media posts and donated dollars, help will come. From America, help will come. America will come. American veterans will always come too. Ukraine also knows that, and a friend of the show and guest in episode 161, author Matt Gallagher, tweeted this week. By my count, nine Americans have been killed fighting in Ukraine. Willie Joseph Cancel, Stephen Zabilski, Luke Lucian, Brian Young, Joshua Jones, Skylar James Gregs, Paul Kim. Dane Partridge, and Timothy Griffin. And a tenth, Grady Kerpozzi, remains missing in action. How do you ever say a proper thank you to those who gave all fighting for democracy? You say it by never dropping your vigilance and focusing on protecting and defending that democracy and sharing it with others and paying it forward. The French helped us defend democracy In the American Revolution, we helped the French defend democracy in World War II. And now, we're helping Ukraine do the same against Putin. And one day, Ukraine will help another country whose democracy is threatened. It's about remembering that helping others is required and that helping is contagious. Even when America needs help ourselves, like we do now. The spirit of America and the spirit of not being the world's police, but being a helper, being a global citizen, being a good neighbor. In the same way, you'd help a neighbor whose car got stuck in the snow. America must help our neighbors globally when they need it. And we must continue to set the example. From America, help will come. And in America, help will come. That's the spirit of this country, not just during the holidays, and especially when times are hard. And it's why independent Americans are so vital right now in protecting, defending, and improving our democracy. And it's why I launched a new plan called Operation Independence last week. Because we are the change we seek. We are the helpers America needs now. From America, help will come sometimes also for America, in America, from America. Almost two years since January 6th, the threat remains, and the stakes have never been higher. America's domestic enemies continue to gather and grow. The Oath Keepers continue to organize. Trump continues to reorganize his movement. And the American insurgency continues to grow. And maybe has just launched the most significant domestic attack since January 6th. This week, in Moore County, North Carolina, where more than 38,000 utility customers are still without power after targeted attacks on two electrical substations. This was deliberate. This was coordinated. This was intentional. And this isn't the last time it'll happen. And when it does, America must help for America, from America, Help must come. And it doesn't always come. And it doesn't come often enough, as our guest today will often and smartly point out. But here in America, there are people assigned and committed to helping. There's funding and structure for helping. And there's a uniquely American spirit of helping. It's not perfect. And there's never enough of it. But it's there. Especially this season. And especially. When stakes are high. You high. About them. The world often still hopes, prays and asks for America's help. And few, if any, are more deserving of it this holiday season than the Ukrainians. And this week, their president Zelensky was appropriately named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. And this comes at a critical time. When all the Ukrainians want for Christmas is peace. And this also comes after Ukrainian forces conducted two strikes on Russian strategic air bases inside Russia, inflicting damage and demonstrating an ability to hit Russia in rear areas and disrupt the campaign of strikes that are happening on Ukrainian infrastructure that have shut off the lights and put them in the cold. But Ukraine is now hitting Russia in. Russia. And this is an important, expected, and appropriate evolution of the war. Ukraine must defend itself. And it can't be expected to just sit back and wait to get hit over and over again by Putin. It's only a matter of time before the fighting expands deeper into Russia. When America was attacked on 9 11, we moved quickly to hit them over there before they could hit us. It was our rally cry. It was our rationale. And the rules for us, for Israel, and for others, shouldn't be different than the rules for Ukraine now. We've got to empower them not just to defend, but to win. And the war doesn't end until Putin gives up or is defeated. The people of Ukraine understand that. But many in the West still don't. The road to peace goes over Putin's dead body that's the truth now, more than ever. And it's why the help from America must continue to flow. And why this holiday season, especially, we must stand with Ukraine. Because the fighting doesn't stop for the holidays whether it's in Ukraine or on the political front lines here in America. And as I shared in the last episode, and for more than 200 episodes we've had, this is a unique moment for independent Americans. It's a time to bring independence together, to connect, unite, and empower them. And in the last episode, you heard from Andrew Yang about his plan to do it. And you heard me introduce you to Operation Independence my plan to build an independent political infrastructure to save America. A plan with a goal of creating a disruptive, leading, independent political organization and the momentum behind this new movement of independence in America. And it is a movement. It's more than a party. It's more than a show. It's more than an election. It's a movement. And if you haven't yet learned more, go to operationindependence.com. Or look for it in the show notes of this episode or at independentamericans.us. Tell me what you think. I want to hear your feedback. Because if you're listening right now, you probably recognize independent doesn't mean the middle. It means none of the above. And it's not a new party. It's no party. America's not a party. It's a mission. And there's no I in team, but there's one in America. And again this week, we saw how critical independents are to the future of America. As the great fragmentation of American politics continued. The political change is 24-7. It's 12 months out of the year. It doesn't take the holidays off. And our politics continue to shift and change. And the disruption. The great fragmentation continues, and so does the independent wave. The wave that determined so many elections all across America last month did it one more time in the special election for the U.S. Senate seat in Georgia. Now, I've lived in Georgia. I trained in Georgia in the Army, and the first place in America I set foot in after Iraq was Georgia. Georgia's changing, but probably not fast enough. And this week, we found out how much as Raphael Warnock defeated Herschel Walker 51-49. to 49. And once again, independent Americans were the difference. Now look, I'm not blown away by Raphael Warnock, but Herschel Walker winning would have been a ridiculous embarrassment for Georgia, for America, and for humanity. And no doubt, yet again, in another key election, independent Americans were the difference. But 1.7 million people still voted for Herschel Walker. Yeah, the big story is that Warnock won. But it's also a huge story that it was even that close, especially running against Herschel Walker. Things are changing in Georgia. But Democrats are still so unpopular in a state like Georgia that 1.7 million people still voted for the catastrophe that was Herschel Walker as a candidate for U.S. Senate. And it showed that America is still deeply, deeply divided. So it's kind of like most of the other big elections this year. Democrats are euphoric, Republicans are pissed, and independents are glad that the radical, ridiculous, extreme person didn't win. And our guest coming up grew up in Georgia and has a very unique insight into how it's changing and how it's not. That's coming up in a couple of minutes. But with all the focus on Georgia, I'm still stunned there wasn't more talk or discussion about the legacy and the importance of Senator Max Cleland. I covered it on this show when he died. But Max was a Democrat who won there when few others couldn't, in large part because he transcended party. And now, especially, his story needs to be known and appreciated. Because oftentimes in places like Georgia, and oftentimes recently, Democrats win when they don't sound like Democrats. And Georgia is not the only way that our political landscape is changing. The Democrats are also changing their primary calendar to remove Iowa as the first state in their primary calendar and replacing it with South Carolina. And this would be good, in my view. The more diverse the early states are, the better. The more purple they are, the better. And now, President Biden and every Democrat and every Republican leader must come out on the record and support open primaries in all those states. In Iowa and now in South Carolina. And they need to stop using public funds to block independents from voting in what are really private elections. So no longer leading off the process are Iowa and New Hampshire, and they're replaced by South Carolina, then New Hampshire and Nevada, then Georgia and Michigan. And Biden and the Democrats have right to recognize that more voters of color need to have a voice in the primary process. But they also have to recognize that that means ensuring open primaries so millions of independent voters of color can vote, too. Voters of color aren't just Democrats, especially among young people. And it's long past time for them all to have the right to vote in primaries, primaries that don't require you to join a party, like the original independent American, George Washington. I walked by Federal hall this week in Lower Manhattan near Wall Street, at the spot where George Washington was sworn in. And he reminded us about the dangers of parties that have never been greater. He understood, America's not a party. It's a mission. Independent Americans are the future of American politics. And many in the Democratic and Republican parties know it, and they want to stop it. Because we are a direct threat to their duopoly. But they can't and won't stop us. We're like the Morocco of American politics. Morocco, who shocked the world this week and upset soccer powerhouse and former World Cup champion Spain. Because this is a time of disruption of sports, social, and political revolution, not just in Iran, not just in China, but here at home in America too. Because like the disruption and upsets throughout the World Cup in the last few weeks, the great fragmentation of American politics will continue. Political fragmentation has continued, and so has the rise of the American insurgency. I told you about the North Carolina attack on a power station, and I think it underscores that the threat from the American insurgency is real and rising, and it remains the number one national security threat. And when it happened, the Associated Press called it criminal vandalism. Criminal vandalism. If you don't know what it is, don't call it anything, because it's much more likely to be domestic terrorism than criminal vandalism. But here we go again. The same failures by the media we saw after January 6th when so many were calling the insurrectionists rioters. Because the problem isn't rioters. It's violent domestic extremists who are pent on overthrowing our government. And it ain't just in the US. Extremism is a problem worldwide and copycats are conspiring. And this week in Germany, 25 suspects were arrested who were planning to overthrow the German government. Among those detained were a German prince, a former far-right member of parliament, an active-duty soldier, and former members of the police and elite special forces. Because this holiday season, extremism isn't just rising in the U.S. It's also rising in Europe and around the globe. And like Santa on that NORAD website, you need to keep it on your radar. In the past few episodes, I've recommended that you keep on your radar the American insurgency and the World Cup and the special election and the rise of the independent wave. And our guest in this episode is a unique, powerful, and inspiring voice who uniquely understands all of it. He's another important, inspiring, and soon-to-be iconic leader that is shaping what America was, what it is, and what it will be. The powerful, courageous, and inspiring Moroccan soccer team represents powerful and inspiring change. Inside the World Cup and the world of sports, they're leading a dynamic and urgent new revolution. The powerful, courageous, and inspiring Iranian protesters represent powerful and inspiring change. They're leading a dynamic and urgent revolution there. And our guest represents powerful, powerful, Courageous and inspiring change, too. And he's leading a dynamic and urgent new revolution of a different kind. He's Eamon say. Eamon was born in Egypt, but he grew up in Georgia. And this song is by Arrested Development you may or may not know, is also from Georgia. And Eamon has risen from a little boy who dreamed about being a news anchor to the highest levels of national and international journalism. He started NBC News in Washington, D.C. in 2001. And then 9-11 happened. And as he'll share, his life experience, passion, drive, and expertise carried him around the world to the most important and often misunderstood stories and parts of the world, from covering the September 11 attacks on the World Trade Center to the U.S.-led war in Afghanistan. Throughout his career, amon has been covering conflict, war, and revolution. He's been recognized for his coverage of stories centered on the Middle East, in Palestine, Lebanon, and Iraq, where he reported on the ground about the war and brought light to the impact of the invasion on civilians. Ayman was detained by Egyptian security forces in Tahrir Square during the uprisings in 2011. He covered the Arab uprisings and was the first journalist to be given access to nuclear research facilities in Libya. He's covered change while leading it and embodying it. He's won a Peabody. He's worked at Fox, CNN, Al Jazeera, English, and then joined MSNBC in 2011, where he now leads his own show called Ayman which brings his unique and powerful perspective to global and national politics and news. Eamon's also a family man. He's a dedicated husband and father of two young kids. He's a New Yorker, and he's very passionate about the World Cup, which you will hear about, but like all his work, in ways you probably haven't heard before, but should. He's also a very cool person, a role model and a passionate guardian of our democracy. He's a rising force in media that was named to Time's Most Influential 100 list. He's showing that America can help because he's trying every single day. Let's talk about a red. Hey. A couple years ago, he wrote, when I was a young boy growing up in the Middle East, I used to make home videos pretending I was a newscaster. Today, I hosted my first show as an anchor of a news program on an American news channel. To all the kids out there, don't give up. Dreams do come true. Onwards. Amen has shown that dreams do come true. And in many ways, he's leading a revolution of sorts in American media. Like Morocco's in soccer and Iran's in the streets, it's one that's long overdue. So as the World Cup, Santa Claus, the war in Ukraine... The protests in more and more countries by the day, and the threat of extremism all unite our globe. Welcome to the most global time in our lifetime. Welcome to the season of giving. Welcome to a time of global connection. Welcome to the revolution, one that will be televised. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 200. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, and especially anybody watching the World Cup, watching global politics, watching U.S. politics. We're going to get into it with a man that I am very happy and honored and thrilled to finally have joining us on the show in a very perfect moment for all of that. The great and powerful Eamon Mouyadine joins us on Independent Americans. Welcome, my friend great to be with you thank you so much for
1: having me super excited so how much did I fuck up your last name not at all you nailed it I'm actually quite impressed
0: (laughs) I'm trying. I want to try to get it right man I want to try to get it right you got it you nailed it all right well I'm dude first of all uh, we got a lot to talk about yeah Uh, World Cup Iran uh insurrectionists uh the future of the world and media but first of all it's it's great to have you here man I'm really grateful we, we delayed this because we both wanted to watch
1: the end of the Morocco game. Holy shit. What, what a match, man. I mean, listen, our house, we're, um, I don't know if you know, my wife is from Tunisia. I'm from Egypt. So we have a, a strong North African love. A lot of our friends are Moroccan. So um, we've been to Morocco. It's a very special place for us. So we were glued to the TV, watching every minute, watching it all come down to that final uh, penalty kick. And then, like, man, it just erupted. And dude, it was a wa- him, you know,
0: by I, the way, in the house, but the house erupted. Dude, I, I, uh, I, I watch you on Instagram and you are one of my like vacation role models because I watch oh, you and I see you and your, and your beautiful family, you're going to all these cool places. And I'm like, this guy has got it. But I, but I've seen your connection to many places. And can we just talk about for a minute, how big it is that Morocco beat Spain. I mean, beyond, I've been saying all, 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 all month that this world cup is about so much more, than soccer, but a cultural moment, like a
1: disruption of the power structure. Can you explain, in your view, how big this is? I mean, I think you nailed it right on the head because that is the best way to describe it. Look, the World Cup is always about sport, but it's always about so much more than just the sport. And I think in this World Cup, you see throughout every game all of these kind of like um, cultural undertones and geopolitical undertones, whether it's the U.S. versus Iran, whether it is the US versus England, whether it's Tunisia versus France, and in this case, um, Spain versus Morocco. So there's always this kind of like little geopolitical flavor to all these games. It's ultimately about the sport, but even within the actual game, like we saw today, Ashraf Hakimi, he's the Moroccan player who scored that penalty kick. He is an incredible story. I mean, his parents are immigrants to Spain. We know how um, sensitive the conversation around immigration is in Europe generally and assimilation his family immigrated to Spain. His dad was a street vendor. His mom was cleaning houses. He grew up playing in Real Madrid. And when the time came for him to choose who he was going to represent on the world stage, he didn't forget about his roots and his family's roots. And, And he decided to play and represent Morocco. And for me, as somebody who lives in America, that kind of thing is really celebrated. I mean, when you look at the American national team, how many American players are representing the United States, but were born Overseas or or played their club team overseas, but have strong roots to America and they come back to represent America. And that's the beauty of this sport. That's the beauty of the World Cup. That's the beauty of a game like Morocco versus Spain. I
0: love that. And I want to come back to it, but I wanna I wanna also ground us in a question I ask of everyone, given this this global understanding you have and all the world travels you do, you're this international man of mystery. Uh, where are you and how are you? Uh,
1: I'm in New York, baby. <laughs> I'm at home in Brooklyn. Um, you know, for me, like honestly, as much as I travel around the world, um ultimately New York is home. You know, my kids were born here. Uh, it's where my wife and I got married in the sense that we met, and we have a home here. So for me new york is 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 home. And no matter where I go around the world and I love to travel, as you know that as you said that, I always feel special a special connection to New York. When I come back, I just feel at peace. I love the city. I love the people. I love the energy, and it's I can't describe it, you know? am I, I think you you understand this like when you're here, you know you, you, the, the city it, there's garbage. The subway don't necessarily work. It's, it's a bit of a dirty city. It's got a little bit of grit. It's got a lot of grind. But when you're here, man, the people, the energy you just love it. So uh, I'm in New York. I'm doing well. can't complain. Family's doing great. Everybody's doing very well getting ready for the holidays like everybody else, but uh, we're blessed.
0: I, I think New York City is a very intoxicating, vexing, special kind of love affair. And 100%. It, it's it's someone where, you know, the sex is amazing and you have an awesome time, but sometimes it's not good for you and your friends tell you you should find something else. Like it, it, there's a lot to New York, right? And it goes, it goes through its waves because right now the the New York City that I'm in love with is Eric Adams' New York City, which is different than Bill De Blasio's city, exactly. which is different than Mike Bloomberg's city, right? But it's 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 something you that's in like when you once By the you fall in love with New York, you can't get right?
1: it New York City is not for everyone. It's no. not for it's a, it's for a specific type of person, and um and I think that's what makes it so special. Ultimately, New York for me is always about the people and the energy and what they bring uh, to this city.
0: Yeah, and it's I think it's also I said this to Andrew Yang in the last episode. I think it's the best place in America to watch the World Cup. I mean, maybe one of the best places in the world. It's different now because it's wintertime and not the summer. Yeah. But in the summer, everybody's out in the streets watching games. Every neighborhood,
1: all the communities are intersecting. Right. But you know why? Is it, New York is such a microcosm of the world. And the World yeah. Cup is about bringing people together. And I think in America, there is no city. Um, in America, or, or quite honestly, in the world, that brings the world together like a New York City, and it's exactly like you said, man. You just walk around any of these neighborhoods. I live in a predominantly um, Italian neighborhood, um, Italian American neighborhood, and and you walk here, and bars have the games on, and people are speaking Italian, and people are cheering, and that's not in Italy. It's not even in the World Cup this uh, this year, but but there's so much love and respect for diversity and culture, and people appreciate what the World Cup represents, Um, and you really do get a flavor of that here walking around New York City.
0: And it maybe is one of the few truly shared positive global experiences we have. Maybe the most true. Right. I mean, other than I would wars, argue, yes. And I'm biased
1: because right? I am a huge soccer fan. I'm yeah. a huge World Cup fan. Yeah.
0: But I, 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 there's nothing. I mean, something like the Super Bowl in the U.S. can't even compare. I mean, wars, you know, maybe can compare and, you know, huge natural natural catastrophes, but it doesn't have that captive audience and everybody having that shared language i mean the one thing i've said is in many countries you can always talk about sports you can always talk about the weather and you can always talk about family right Like, because everybody for the most part has a family and everyone's affected by the weather so wherever you are you can say oh it sucks that it's raining it's beautiful that it's sunny and you have this common language among most of yeah. the world for at least a couple of weeks which is really special but i want to ask you to, to go deeper on the politics of it too because i've been reading everything you're writing i think you've been a really important voice Uh, I think you ask a lot of hard questions that almost no one else, at least in in the national media, is asking. Um, Can you talk about what the World Cup means for the especially America and the world's understanding of the Middle East? And, you know, you you have lived in Qatar and you've been talking a lot about it. Um, Can you break down in your viewpoint just what this means and what you think are some of the most important
1: storylines around that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I think um we should rightfully talk about the World Cup in all of its complexities. Um, nobody is saying do not have those conversations. I want to be absolutely clear about that. I think when we talk about the World Cup, we should talk about it um, from a few different angles. And I think we should be honest with ourselves as to whether we are having these conversations like we would if the event was being held in our country or in Europe or elsewhere around the world. And let's start with um the way countries bid. And win the World Cup. Um, And this obviously pertains to FIFA. FIFA is the governing body of global soccer. They're the ones that put on the World Cup, they're the ones that decide which countries host the World Cup. And by all accounts, FIFA is an extremely controversial organization. It has been the subject of intense scrutiny, intense investigations, criminal indictments in the United States. Uh, A lot of people describe FIFA as a very corrupt organization that has corrupted the process of how countries ultimately win the world cup. So let's be clear about that because I don't want anyone to say like this is a justification or or an explanation of of why Qatar or other countries have won the world cup. In doing so, it is important to say let's target the conversation about FIFA, how FIFA can be better, how FIFA can do this more transparently, but to single out one country saying, well this country got the world cup illegitimately when you're not taking into consideration how other countries got it including the United States in 1994 as well as the kind of secondary conversations that people say like Qatar doesn't deserve to host the World Cup. And when you ask, why doesn't a small country like Qatar deserve to host the World Cup? They will make arguments like it doesn't have a strong soccer tradition. It doesn't have um, a sports culture. Uh, It doesn't have a prestigious uh, soccer league. And those are not in my opinion, valid arguments for what the sport is about. America did not have a professional soccer league when it hosted the World Cup in 1994. In fact, the World Cup allowed America then to turn around and launch MLS, which has been a huge success and could potentially be bigger if Messi and Ronaldo ultimately come and play here, as is often reported. So we'll see. But my my critique of the coverage has been around two things. One, not applying a uniform standard in the criticism of Qatar. But also using sometimes Orientalist and, and stereotypical tropes about the Middle East. And, and we can get into that a little bit, um, you know, at greater lengths. But there's always this tendency to um, reduce the Arab world to stereotypes and tropes. Um, and it tries to paint the region as monolithic. You you have lived in the region. You know, the Arab world is made up of, you know, nearly two dozen countries Everyone has a very different history, different geopolitical interests, different culture. Yes, shared language, shared religion, but very different backgrounds and objectives as countries and societies. And then there's the discussion around human rights, LGBTQ rights, um, sustainability. And again, these are all very valid questions. They are all very valid criticisms to be had. But it's important to put them in the proper context um, and not just singling out one country that is part of a larger regional ecosystem that requires, um, you know, being overhauled and then ultimately being addressed. And and here's what I mean by that. You and I, we live in America. We know that America has a lot of systemic problems, whether it comes to criminal justice, social justice, uh, race relations, Uh, income inequality. These are systemic problems baked into the American system. And yet nobody ever says because of these systemic problems that we have, we can't try to move forward. We can't try to progress. We aren't making progress on them. Or we should be stripped of any position that we have globally because we are unable to address our systemic problems internally within our own country. So the arguments of people to say, let's boycott Qatar, let's uh, strip the World Cup away from them, they don't deserve this, and constantly criticizing, it it reduces the conversation around the World Cup to these, I think, very simplistic talking points that do um, a disservice to both the people genuinely trying to spotlight the issues and looking at whether or not there's actual progress being made in these systemic uh, problems that I think Qataris will tell you they are aware of and they need to improve on. Mm.
0: Thank you for all of that. I think that that for many folks, that's not an analysis they're hearing. And that's part of why, frankly, I do this show is to try to open the conversation in, in different ways and also to some extent to connect the dots. And one of the big storylines in the World Cup has been Iran. And this is a show we always focus on national security and global security and human rights. And we've been covering what's happening in Iran, inside Russia, in China. Um, can you, Eamon, in, in your view, frame up what what is happening in Iran right now? And I am consistently shocked by the lack of co- that's not, not shocked, but uh, disappointed in the lack of, of coverage here in the U.S. Um, similarly, for most conflict areas, I was supposed to be on a, a network today. Um, to talk about Ukraine, and then there's, you know, a murder mystery happening in Iowa, which I'm sure is important to that community, but it doesn't have the global impl- implications. Right. And, and uh, Iran is, is, is at least in my view, the closest thing I've seen in my lifetime to a revolution. I mean, it feels like it's happening, what many of us have hoped for, rooted for, um, tried to support in whatever ways. Can you frame up what it is that
1: you think is happening in Iran and what happens next? Yeah, I think, in my opinion, what is happening in Iran is actually quite simple. It is a people who have been oppressed, who um, who have been denied their most basic, fundamental human rights, who are rising up and saying enough. They don't want this anymore. They don't want to be oppressed. They don't want to be held back. They don't want to live under this draconian, oppressive uh, religious rule that has been imposed on them um, for the better part of the last forty years. And this is a movement that is being led by young women. Uh, girls, students, um, professionals, and ordinary Iranians who are saying they don't want to live in a country that is ruled as a theocracy anymore. That's the general um, premise of what is happening right now. And it all started because it has been building up for years. But you know, in moments of revolution, we can never anticipate what the spark or what the triggering moment was. And in this particular case, it was the the death of this young um, Iranian woman, Masa Amini, um, at the hands of what people believe to be the morality police. Um, The the allegation was that she was taken in because she was not properly wearing her head covering. And while she was in police custody, she was beaten. And ultimately, that led to her death. Um, And and because there was so much anger around the circumstances of how this young woman was just uh, killed and with complete disregard for her life and what her life means, people have taken to the streets demanding not just immediate justice for her, but justice in the broad sense for the society that has had to deal with this kind of oppression and these types of um, you know killings uh, for years. So, so that's the general premise of what is happening. Where this goes from here, I think honestly is very difficult. Um, one of the challenges, and it's not to dodge the question, but it's to kind of explain the question to the point that you raised about the coverage. One of the hardest things about Iran as a journalist is that Iran is an oppressive close society. We don't have journalists there. People often compare it to Ukraine. And I say, well, yes, Ukraine is is a group of Ukrainians, people fighting for their freedom and defending their country and democracy against Russian aggression. And that is what is happening in Iran with people fighting against their oppression and seeking their freedom. The difference is there are hundreds if not thousands of journalists on the ground inside of Ukraine who are able to see, report, document speak to Ukrainians and get that message to the outside world. Iran is more it's a closed society. Western journalists can't just get in there easily. We are relying on a network of Iranians who are shooting and filming and documenting these atrocities by themselves for the world to see. And that creates that much more layer Uh, of difficulty, if you will, in trying to get that word out to the world. Because as you can imagine, there's process of verifications, there's process of authenticating, there's process of making sure you're getting the proper context as to what is actually happening in real time when you hear stories that are heartbreaking and troubling. So it's just one of the many uh, challenges. And I think the other challenge is that we are realizing, like we did in the 9-11 era as a journalist who came up in the post-9-11 world, we don't have enough journalists who are Iranians working in Western newsrooms mm-hmm. who can explain and understand and know the language and know the culture, and know the nuance and know the politics of um, of a place that is as complex as Iran. So, so those are just some of the layers. And, and again, I don't want to dodge your question about where does it go from here? I just feel it is very difficult for me to answer that question. The protesters and the people who are leading this Um, revolution. There are Iranians who say they are not going to settle for anything less than a complete change to the regime and a complete change to their governance and the way that their country functions and rules over them. Um, I think the Iranian regime right now is not sure how to respond to this. This is a, a government that has in the past used deadly force and used deadly violence to suppress uprisings. This uprising is different, or this revolution is different, or this protest movement is different. But the Iranian government so far has not unleashed the same deadly force that it is known that it could possibly do that. And I say that knowing that the Iranian government has already killed hundreds of people, including children. It's engaged in all kinds of allegations of human rights abuses and systemic abuses. But the fear is that it is also a country that is willing to and has demonstrated it has the ability to, to suppress movements and protests with deadly and lethal force so i am not sure where it goes yet
0: it it um you know the heroism i think is is hard to comprehend um i think iranians at least in the american media stage may be among the most misunderstood and stereotyped people at least in my, in my lifetime i feel like do, do you think amon that we see i mean this is a hard thing to answer for too But, you know, you could argue the regime, you know, wants to let it burn out and doesn't want to crush it and create an even bigger uprising. But do you think Iran will be free in the next decade in our lifetime? I mean, when you look at it and you talk to people on the ground and around the world, what does your gut tell you and your expertise tell you? Because I feel like for many people in America, they feel like it's absolutely so far away. It's North Korea and it's not, at least in my limited understanding. So how How possible is a free Iran soon and in our
1: lifetime? I think, look, I am a person who believes in freedom, right? I mean, I know that sounds very simplistic, but I believe societies move towards freedom and they move towards freedom at different paces. Obviously, I lived through the Arab Spring in 2011 when we thought that was going to be a pivotal moment for the Arab world to actually introduce um, new democratic forms of government. And maybe naively so, the forces, the anti-democratic forces in the region, the anti-freedom forces in the region turned out to be stronger than we had thought. But that doesn't mean the people who are in the Arab world aren't yearning for freedom and democracy and a better system of governance in a lot of these countries. I think Iran is in the same boat. I think Iranians are a proud people who come from a proud tradition of a of a successor to ancient empire and civilization um when you have that kind of history when you have that kind of education when you have that kind of sophistication the the desire to be free is not something that can be suppressed so easily so i i think that yes i think in our lifetime we will see a free and democratic and equitable um iran um mm-hmm. is it going to be tomorrow is it going to be a week from now is it going to be a year from now i can't answer that question just the same way i couldn't have predicted the the triggering mechanism behind the Arab Spring um, nearly 12 years ago, but I did see the result of that movement and it confirmed for me that the people in the region yearn to be free, yearn to live in more just societies economically, socially, and politically. And I think the Iranians are exactly the same and and deserve exactly the same.
0: Mm. Eamon, building on that, I mean, you've been celebrated for your journalism, and I think you have a really unique feel and expertise and understanding um, the evolving political social, military landscape that we face. I mean, from Iran to the the uprising to your time on the ground in Iraq. I mean, I I was telling you in advance of this conversation, you know, we were looking back at at your thesis, right, from 2002, that was the new media paradigm in the war on terrorism. right? I'm not going to go into your thesis, but to say that you've been thinking about this and studying this for a long time. And the construct in this country around what terrorism is, has been about Muslim people attacking Americans for a long, long time. Now, here we sit almost exactly two years since January 6th, and we're facing what I have called the American insurgency. And I call it that because it is, in my view, a true insurgency. You've got a group of organized, militant people who are focused on overthrowing the government. And you have to call it what it is. And that's what I think this is led by Trump and led by the and fueled by the Oath Keepers and propelled by so many components. You also have this unique understanding where you grew up in Georgia. Right. And and in the country of Georgia in America. So, yeah. you know, about some of this and you've covered this. Can you frame up um, what you think is happening in this country I've called it the American insurgency. I think it's the number one national security threat. We saw some kind of an attack in North Carolina on critical infrastructure this week. We're recognizing the January 6th police heroes this week. But the country, I think, is underestimating the potency and the growth and the dynamism of extremism in this country where it's Americans attacking other Americans. How do you view all this, man?
1: Yeah, listen, I mean, I agree with everything you just said there, right there. Um, One of the things that I try to uh, frame for people on my show and in conversations I have on the air is that we tend to think of America as an old country, a country that has been tried and tested for almost 240 years. And I think that is misleading. And the reason why I say that is America is an old country, but America has not been a country for all of its citizens with all equal rights women and men people of all walks of life only for the last 60 years i mean since the 1960s is when we've had full equality in america mm-hmm. and when you when you contextualize that when you think of yes america had been around for 200 years or 150 years plus but that was only for white men and then it included white women but it didn't include minorities it didn't include black people it didn't include black women it didn't include people of color Um, And only in the last 60 years have we become a multiracial, multiethnic, democratic society with equal citizenship under the law. And that is a relatively young country. 60 years or so is a young country in a country that is 300 million plus people. And when you look at it from that perspective, you can begin to see that we may not be doing as well as we think we are in terms of a functioning, healthy democracy that represents all of our citizens. We need to do better at making sure everyone has a right to vote, everyone's voice is being heard in the process, everyone is being represented equally in that process. When you look at some of our fundamental problems, democratically speaking, um, the Electoral College is out of date. This was a system designed when we were 13 colonies and maybe about a million or so citizens. We're now 330 million Uh, uh, Americans plus 50 states. The Supreme Court is nominated by presidents who have not, the majority of the Supreme Court justices are nominated by presidents who did not have the popular vote, meaning they did not have the majority mandate to govern or to nominate someone, confirmed by a Senate that represents nearly 40 million less Americans than the minority party. So when you start thinking about, well, how are we making our decisions as a country, is it majority rule? Is it majority rule? And is it minority rights, which is kind of what we think of our democracies, that we always want the majority to make the decisions. That's how we get consensus. But at the same time, the minority is represented and respected. Are we really fulfilling that? And I, I think it's a safe argument to say we're falling short. Mm-hmm. So when you take that, coupled with the rise of what the FBI says, white nationalism, extremism, white supremacy, fueled by demagogues like Donald Trump and others within the Republican Party, coupled with the disinformation that we're seeing, and the income inequality, which leads to people becoming more destitute in this country. We are, you know, we are in a very dangerous time, um, where extremism is on the rise. And this is something going back to my to my thesis a little bit. um, It's something that I'm sure you and I have seen in the Middle East, you know, the Middle East, for a long time, had destitution. There was definitely disinformation and manipulation, certainly religious manipulation. And you had the demagoguery of extremist leaders like Osama bin Laden and Abu Bakr al baghdadi and all these other uh, terrorist leaders who came in and manipulated people with this religious ideology, use people who are down on their luck and destitute and say, hey, We can fix this if you follow us. Let's go attack our enemies. And what you're seeing now in this country is something similar brewing. People that are destitute, they're prone to disinformation, they're following demagogues who are telling them, I alone can fix it. This election is not real. These people are taking our jobs. We have a serious crisis and we have to use violence or have to use any means we can to stop this country from going down this road. And, and I think to your point, this, this is what we're seeing happen. It's what the FBI is worried about in terms of the rise of domestic terrorism and white nationalism. Um, you know, it, it is the biggest threat I think this country is facing. And I think even the statistics of the number of attacks reflects that reality as well.
0: Yeah, Ken, we were honored to have Ken Burns on this show a couple of weeks ago and he talked a lot about grievance and about the, the weaponization of grievance and the power of grievance. And we've got this very deep grievance um, among a population that's disproportionately angry white men who don't feel like they have a connection to the future of this country. And they have an access to guns that that is so dwarfs what I had to deal with in an insurgency in Iraq, it's almost incomprehensible to me. So the 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 opportunity and and the uh, environment that exists for an insurgency and extremism to grow, I think, is still underestimated by people, especially in places like New York and California. So let me ask you to, to, to build on this in one way, Eamon. You've been great at explaining to America, Iran, explaining to America, the Middle East. Can you explain to people what you know about Georgia? That you think people might not know about Georgia, because by the time this airs, the election may have been settled between Warnock and and Walker. Um, I view it as one of those places that is uniquely ripe for independence and for people who are dissatisfied with both parties. But you've got this epic matchup in a state that is in many ways, you know, an insight into America. But what do you know about Georgia and want people to know about Georgia that they might not unless they've lived there and been there like you?
1: Yeah, I mean, listen. I went to high school in Georgia, and I my parents still live there. I still go back, you know, a couple times a year. Um, in fact, when we first moved to the, to Georgia, it was um, in 1993, just as Newt Gingrich was, you know, basically leading uh, the contract with uh, the contract with America back in in the early 90s and and sweeping the Republicans into into power. Um, Georgia is a complex state and it's a complex state because exactly what you said, it, it, it's a cross section of so many of the geopolitical forces in our country. You have this urban area that is uh, predominantly African-American. You have a growing suburban community that is diverse. Um, Georgia's economy is doing very well. But it is also a state with a very strong conservative tradition, religious tradition, which informs and shapes its conservative politics. And so it is at the intersection of all of these different tectonic plates that we're seeing in this country between urban versus rural, between African-American and white, between suburban and urban, between um you know uh, minority communities and as the demographics in the state change you're seeing the politics of it change so georgia people forget georgia was also um a state that had jimmy carter who was a by any means a progressive democratic president in the 70s become president of the united states and he wasn't a just a conser- he was not a conservative democrat he was a progressive democrat he was talking about like Climate change in the '70s. Yeah. He he was talking about things that. But were he was a
0: populist too, right? There's a, he he was a peanut farmer who went to the Naval Academy. Exactly. Right? And there's like I, part of what I've been talking about and writing about is my shock and fascination about how little people are not only talking about Jimmy Carter, but about Max Cleland, who yeah, was a Democrat exactly. elected in Georgia, but Max was elected in part because he was you know transpartisan. I mean, he was. He was a triple amputee. He was a Vietnam vet who talked like he was from Georgia. He loved Georgia. And I've you know, I've lived in Georgia when I first got home from Iraq. The first place I set foot on was was Georgia. And and there seems to be this. uh, Maybe it's just a lack of understanding of Georgia. But I haven't heard Max Cleland's name once. When you talk about how can Democrats win back the Senate, you hear Stacey Abrams and and everyone else. But nobody looks at, at, at Max Cleland as an insight into Georgia
1: as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's the thing is Georgia has this long history and tradition of electing those types of Democrats. And I think that if um, you know the new face of the Democratic Party in Georgia, I mean, look at the two candidates that you have. You have John Ossoff and you have Raphael Warnock. Mm-hmm. And I think they represent both of the kind of new Democrats that are emerging in a state. But Georgia is all about voter participation. And if you can get more people to participate in the process, which really is the challenge of America to have a more representative democracies, how do you get more people to turn out? There is there is a reason why this controversial anti-voting uh, or voter suppression bill, SB202, was passed following what happened um, in 2020. People saw the turnout and are trying to, in in a, in a very simple way, change the reality of votes. And people think like, oh, you have to try to make up or remake the composition of Georgia. Joe Biden won Georgia by approximately 12,000 votes. I mean, that's what Donald Trump wanted Brad Raffensperger on that infamous phone call to find him, more or less, 12,000 votes. So if you can peel away 12,000 votes from different parts of of the state, Republicans can hold on to it or at least suppress the vote enough that you don't get those 12,000 votes and you can have a very different reality. So Georgia for me, I think is, is the epicenter Of so many things happening in america it has massive corporations has a strong military presence it is a cultural hub in this country both um cinematically and musically and has such a deep and historic tradition it has some of the most sensitive racial fault lines that this country has had to experience it has a dynamic economy that is changing and as i mentioned so many forces between urban and rural and urban and suburban so um so it is it is a place to watch it's not an easy place to understand but it is a very important place to watch.
0: I, I really appreciate your your insight into all of this Amen because I think you you've been um really important in helping to explain things to America. And and I think in, in the media too often there are people who are preaching at folks and not necessarily explaining it and trying to break it down and and push the the group thinking the collective understanding. Building on that too, something I, I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, you represent, I think, kind of a next generation uh, media figure, right? I mean, you're you're not shy about your personal opinions. You're on MSNBC, so you you know that's a a, a form that comes baked into it, a certain expectation and a certain kind of audience. But you are you an activist journalist? How would you describe the way you're able to to meld in the things that you care about with your coverage of the news? Because I do think. Yeah, you know, I think you're one of the one of the only people I can watch on MSNBC at times. I, sometimes I feel like you're you're great for MSNBC, but you also don't fit there. And 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 I I look at this as an independent media guy, right? A guy who's been on MSNBC. We've talked about this. I've been a guest there for 20 years, and I've never been a host. But I also feel it moving in different directions, like we feel CNN moving, like we feel Fox moving. So can you just maybe explain to me, explain to us, what's your approach? Like, how do you look at that seat that you hold and, and and how do you look at what you are on the journalistic landscape in America?
1: I really appreciate that. I mean, look, I, you know, I think for me, it's I am somebody who grew up with one foot in America and one foot in the Middle East. I, I grew up traveling between both cultures. And, and part of the, the philosophy that informed so much of my reporting at an early age was that I genuinely believed that. I had to see and hear the other. When I was in the United States, I have to try and explain the, the Middle East to the United States. When I'm in the Middle East, I try to explain some parts of the, of the United States to the Middle East. And I've always seen myself as this kind of conduit between cultures. Trying to explain to people in the Arab world how the Electoral College functions <laughs> is not, it's not an easy job, right? And I'm honestly, I'm not sure I can explain it to Americans either, but, yeah. but nonetheless, it, it's, it's a challenge. And so I've always viewed myself as somebody who wanted to to, um, bridge that gap. And in the early part of my career as a reporter and as a news anchor, um, I very much focused on how I can do that through my reporting. Luckily, in the last year and a half, I have transitioned away from news in the classic sense of reporting on events to perspective. And I am allowed now, because the company has given me the space and the show to do so, to express my opinions and to share my perspective on the events that are happening in the world and around the United States. And it's an important distinction to make for our viewers, because sometimes we just kind of look at the media as one monolithic landscape. And and that's not really the the reality is I I fall now in a department of perspective programming. So in some ways, it's kind of like turning to the op-ed page of a newspaper. Mm -hmm. When you are watching me, you're getting my take on the world and my take on current events. It's not just simply reporting what is happening, which is what I did for the the first you know decade and a half of of my uh, career as a reporter both in the middle east and here in the united states and and elsewhere i mean i've i've reported from europe and um you know south america and and asia so that is how i would i would see it the, the the difference also is that i am coming up at an age as a journalist with social media and i think for a lot of us that's um it's a new tool it's a new resource it's an it's an ability to extend our platform of speaking i have my show on the weekends but I can't just sit by for the entire week um, and not consider the world around me and talk about the world around me. And so with social media, um, I have the ability to make the observations that I want to make and that I do make on my show throughout the course of the week. And in the same, you know, tonight, for example, in a couple hours, I'm going to be going uh, overnight to anchor our special coverage of the, of the Georgia runoff uh, results. So it, it's a 24-7 job and we have the resources now to make that job. Uh, you know, throughout the day as events happen. And we try to stay on top of that in in real time. And that's certainly how I view myself, both editorially, what I try to bring the context and and bridging the gap and challenging us to to look at things from a different perspective, but also the fact that um, this is a 24-7 job. And I like to use that platform as much as I can, whether it's social media, as well as the linear uh, broadcast side
0: well i think the you're using the platform in ways that are really innovative but but even more so your example i think has been so important and courageous so much, um you. and a role model for our kids i mean you you're out there I mean, you're doing stuff do that. that i think spans far beyond the the news and politics and is about the culture and and, you know, Rossi is a good friend for, for both of us, who's been a guest on this show, who's a master of the culture. And I think you're you're really a critically important voice for this country and for the world right now. And I'm grateful for all you're doing. I hope you'll stick around for a couple of quick fire questions for our Patreon members. Um, and I got to let you go pick up your kids. But before I do, you also are a, a father and you've got little ones like I do. Any insights or lessons learned from this last couple of years, just as a human being, as a person, things that got you or your wife or your family through this, that you would,
1: you know, give us advice or recommendations to others. Honestly, the one thing I can, uh, I can say with confidence is there is no one way to parent, but at the core of how you parent is that you just have to love your kids um, and support them and, and, and understand that they develop personalities and, and, um, they are beings in their own right at an early age, right? I think I will be the first to admit that I struggle sometimes. Am I overparenting? Am I not parenting enough? Should I encourage them to do more of this? Should I try to project onto them the things that I like? I mean, I love to watch the World Cup. I want my kids to sit down and watch the World Cup with me, but I don't know if I'm like projecting on them what I want them to do or do I want them to come and celebrate this moment with me and enjoy it. So I am like any other parent. I'm still trying to figure this out. So I can't say that I'm by any means in a position to give people advice. But one thing that I, that I am very confident about is that if you ultimately um, love your kids, they will uh, grow up to be the best version of themselves. Sometimes you just have to tell your kids, you love them and let them be who they are without trying to project onto them what you want them to be or what you want them to be doing at any given, given moment. And that's, that's a little bit hard sometimes, you know, and I also, also, I also, I also want my, I also want my kids to recognize their roots um, and I want their, I want them to always remember and and recognize the sacrifice that their grandparents have made for them. Because mm. uh, you know, I I always think about this, and it's, it's kind of tangential to your question. But um, as the son of immigrants, I always think of, as an immigrant myself. My parents, I was born overseas, but my parents brought me here at a young age. I often think of, do I have what it takes to uh, immigrate to another country the same way my parents did with us? I mean, my parents immigrated to the U.S. My dad was in his forties. He was younger than what i am now and he had already had two kids and i say to myself all the time do i have the courage to do Mm -hmm. what my mom and my dad did in going to a country they had never been to before to raise two kids um, in a completely foreign country simply because they believed in the vision and the and the promise of that country and for me it is the it is the ultimate um, sacrifice because there's immigration for me is all about paying it forward to the next generation there is no other act in the world that comes as generous as saying, you know what, I know that my life is going to be hard by immigrating to a foreign country, but I'm doing this because I believe the promise of that country for my kids and their kids is going to be better off. And I never want my uh, my children to forget that, to forget the sacrifices that their grandparents made for them to be able to grow up in a country like the U.S. and be who they want to be and do what they want to do.
0: Mm. Thank you for sharing that. You have no doubt. You have that courage. That courage is baked into you and it's going to be baked into your kids. And it's a great example for all of us in a time where we need courage and we need courageous examples. So you're living it, man. I'm really, really grateful you joined us. Uh, I'm thankful to have you as a friend. I'm inspired by what you do. And, uh, this world cup shit is just bonkers and so much fun. And it's great chopping it up with you
1: about yeah, that we got, too. Listen, we got, we still got a couple more weeks of this. So enjoy it while it lasts, man. we got some exciting quarterfinal matchups.
0: That's it, man. Well, you should do a sports show. You and I could chop it up and do a sports show. Maybe MSNBC could use a little more fun and flavor. So I, maybe we'll, I agree, I you know, agree make on a that phone point. call or two. We'll chop it up. But until then, Amen, thank you for all you do, my friend. You, all the best and stay vigilant, my friend. Thanks brother. Take care. folks, now you understand why I am so inspired by Eamon and all that he does and why you must follow him, hear him, listen to him, watch him. His show Eamon is on MSNBC on Saturdays from 8 to 10 Eastern and Sundays at 9 o'clock. Check it out. Even if you're not an MSNBC fan, his show is worth checking out. And check him out on social media, especially Instagram, where you can see him do his work, travel around the world, and share his passion for the World Cup. He's a voice of perspective. He's a voice of change. He's a voice of power. He's a voice of patriotism. And he's a true role model. And he's definitely a helper.
1: Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers,
0: you'll know that there's hope. Helpers are out there and not just Santa's helpers. But other helpers are out there every single day and we can see it. So look for them all across the world and all across America. Look for the hashtag, look for the helpers, share them with me because we can show the helpers that are out there and we can show that America can help. We see that daily. And this week, as we recognize the anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the time when countless helpers stepped up into the fray. December 7th, 1941. Ufai Atali Peter T. Coleman was a young U.S. officer in Oahu. His jeep was strafed as he rushed into duty. But he went on to serve at Guadalcanal, and he completed his service at the rank of captain and is the first Samoan in the Army Infantry Hall of Fame. 81 years ago, on December 7, 1941, the youngest active duty person, Would have been about 17, making them 98 today, and some of them are still around. And that generation, the greatest generation, was full of helpers—Americans who helped. Some who are still around today, like Norman Lear, who joined us back on episode 69 and recently turned 100, 100 years old. That's Norman Lear, and he's still helping. And he is the spirit of the helpers. He's the spirit of America, and it's the spirit of the holidays, so look for the hashtag, look for the helpers on Twitter, and share yours. And while you're on social media, whatever platform, play guests the Guest every Wednesday night. Right after I record this, I'm going to post another one, and I'll recognize the folks that play in the days to come. Last week, I had a post for Andrew Yang, and I showed a mysterious image. You couldn't tell it was Andrew Yang next to Dave Chappelle. And a few of you got it. Of course, our friend Delfino Sanchez down in Houston, Texas, he got it. Chris Hamilton got it from Omaha, Nebraska, who describes himself as a CTO, a CU Boulder alumni, a cyclist, and an outdoorsman. Our friend BZ got it again on Twitter, BZIEG477. And he also tweeted, I guess it's finally happening. Andrew Yang? Can't wait for Saturday morning. Yes, you are right. It was Andrew Yang. I'm glad you can enjoy this show every Saturday morning, either in the audio or video form. It'll drop every Thursday night and you can guess on Wednesdays like Claire Owens who got it. She said, you finally got your white whale. Yes, we finally got Andrew Yang. And on Instagram, Alexander Martinez, Nate Holstein, and Boomer Anger. They all got it. I don't know who Boomer Anger is, but that's their title on Instagram. And you correctly identified Andrew Yang. Now we got lots of reaction to that Andrew Yang conversation. Keep it coming. I want to hear from you. Let me know what you think. And if you haven't checked it out, Go back right after this and listen to the episode with Andrew Yang. We will no longer need the hashtag. Where is Yang? He finally joined us. It's one of our most popular conversations yet and share it with whoever you can and help us spread the word. And you can support this show by going to independentamericans.us. You can help us keep this movement growing and you can get some merch you can get hoodies, you can get hats, get your holiday shopping done in one shot. Go to independentamericans.us, kick ass gear to power you through the holidays. Sign up for our newsletter while you're there and check out the video of my conversation with Eamon. I had the World Cup playing behind me. You can see the elves in the shot behind me. More on that in a second. But every episode of this podcast is also on YouTube in video form. So if you got friends who aren't into podcasts, share the YouTube link and spread the word. If you're new here or you're not sure you've subscribed, please be sure to subscribe right now. Go ahead, do it. Oh, wait. Great. Do it. Thank you. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are listening, and leave a review. And you can also support us by going to independentamericans.us and joining our Patreon community. or going direct to Patreon. But give us a couple bucks a month, and you can help support this show. You can help me keep the power going, and you can get exclusive content, like extra content we have this week with Amen. An extended conversation, a lot more informal, a lot of fun. We talk about his first car, which is a fun one. His favorite drink, which is a surprising one. And we talk pancakes versus waffles with a lot of discussion about Waffle House. But that's the extra content that our Patreon members get. And you get the whole show with no ads. Yes, we have ads. We got to pay the bills. But if you go to Patreon, you can do it without any ads whatsoever. So give us a Christmas present, help support this movement and share it with five friends and help us spread independent cheer. Give a friend the freest gift you can. Give them a recommendation to listen to this show. And you can help us continue to deliver the five I's and everything we do. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And Santa's helpers are definitely working overtime on the Righteous Media team to deliver this good content to you this holiday season. That's creative, Chris Rosenthal, brilliant, Bill Schultz, and precise, Paula Hernandez. And three other elves that are working overtime are my wife and two boys. Now as holiday season here in the US hits high gear, this song is playing more and more around the world. It's the song of the Iranian protests. Our past guest and friend of this show, Mazdak Rossi, called it the anthem for freedom in Iran. And the translation of some of the lyrics are for dancing in the street, for being afraid of kissing, for my sister, your sister, our sisters, for changing old values, for women, life, Freedom. For freedom. This holiday time, remember that the brave Iranians are out there standing up for freedom. Right now, in the streets, online, in the open, in the shadows, on the internet. They're out there. And when you see them, they see it. They know that you see them. So make sure to recognize them in whatever way you can. Because we can see how they're making change. And we saw what their soccer team did in the World Cup. Not just pushing the U.S. to the brink, but pushing for awareness about what's happening inside Iran. More importantly, pushing for exposure and pushing for freedom. You've heard it on this show. This World Cup is about so much more than just soccer. And now it's down to eight teams, but every one of them has a story. Croatia plays Brazil. England plays France. And as you heard from my conversation with Eamon, Portugal now plays Morocco. The true Cinderella story of this World Cup. And Argentina plays the Netherlands. Because if for some reason you haven't heard, the U.S. is out. Soon after our conversation last week, the Netherlands beat the U.S. And the U.S. is out. But I want to reflect on how they reminded us that the U.S. can be united. And they reminded us about so much more than soccer. We had our hero, and his name is Christian Pulisic. He was our Captain America. And we had our real captain, Tyler Adams, who's one of New York's finest and America's best. And we should be so inspired and proud to have a guy like Tyler Adams captaining this team of awesome young men. They showed the world the best of what our country is and what it can be. And they also showed how we can be flawed because like our country, the team was pretty young and sloppy, very sloppy. And the inexperience of the U.S. team was glaring. They missed a massive chance to score a goal to start the game. And the Dutch were huge and tough and fast and smart and good. And they plowed through the U.S. team. And it was a tough loss. But we should all still be proud. Most of all, thankful to this young team. For all they've done to inspire us and bring our country together when we needed it so badly right now. This group of America's sons represented the best of us because the U.S. has always been and always will be about the incredible and unique potential of what it can be. And that's true of this team and American soccer. The U.S. will win a World Cup, I think, in the next two decades. And if you have a kid, You likely see it, because a new generation of American soccer players is coming, and they're really, really good. And the next World Cup is on our home field, here in the U.S. and in Canada, and the future is bright. And we should also never forget how incredibly amazing our women's soccer team is. They've won four World Cups, more than any nation in the world. So the future is bright for soccer and for America. And since we've been talking about soccer and football and football and soccer, I got to give a special shout out to my alma mater, James I. O'Neill High School in New York has won the New York State Class C State Championship in football, our first ever championship in the program history. So congrats to the Raiders. You guys did it. You made history. And we are very proud of you. And as we used to say, O'Neill, these kids are the future And speaking of the future, end of football, the American kind, one thing. I hope that in the future, the NFL can get rid of ties. Yes, ties. Ties are crappy in soccer or that kind of football, but they're especially crappy in American football. And this week, my Giants tied the Washington Commanders 20 to 20. Blah. If you don't know, now you know, NFL overtime really sucks. And there should be no ties in American football ever. But American football season is now at its peak. The playoffs are almost here. And the second to last game of the regular season will be on Christmas Eve. And the final day of the season is on New Year's Day. So playoff football is coming. And very soon, so is Santa. Santa! Santa! Oh, my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. Santa is coming. And yes, I, I do know him as I frequently tell my boys. And you know that it's now truly the season because Rocket and Roxy are back. Those are the elves on the shelf in our house, the two little red elves that appear magically as Christmas nears. And therefore, so is the late night, shit, I forgot to move the elves for good parents worldwide. So millions of us in the middle of the night wake up, realize we haven't moved the elves and have to move them to a new magical spot. And it's stressful. And it's agonizing, and it's sometimes annoying, but it's always worth it. And it definitely helps the kids get out of bed for school for a whole month. So solidarity, my fellow parents, let's do this. Santa is coming, and he just gave me a very good Christmas gift. Aaron Judge is staying a Yankee. He just signed a nine-year, $350 million deal, so there's going to be a lot of presents in the Judge house. But this means he's probably going to retire a Yankee which I am very excited about. This just made my kids' entire childhood a good bit more awesome. And families across the tri-state area can now look forward to another decade of memories. I think it's happy news. Once a Yankee, always a Yankee. Great thing for New York. I just wish he could be our mayor, too. Now, I don't know if Aaron Judge is a Democrat or a Republican, and I'll love him either way, but I really hope he's an independent. And if he's not, he can be. He can switch his affiliation and declare his independence anytime. And so can you. As a number of folks have reminded me recently, they were unaware that they can declare their independence. And I'm not asking you to join the forward party, but I will encourage you to declare your independence. That means remove yourself from the Democrat and Republican party duopoly. And you can do that by rejecting both of them. Boycott the parties. Declare your independence this holiday. Give yourself the holiday gift of your own independence. And if young girls in Iran can risk life and limb to fight for their independence, the least we can do is appreciate and declare our own. And you can do more than that. You can also support independent businesses, support independent music, support independent artists, support independent candidates. You can buy independent because independent Americans are leading the way. We're fighting the forces of ignorance and stupidity. And while we're greatly outnumbered, we are growing in our numbers and we can help. We can make a difference. We can be the change we seek from Georgia to Tehran. We can grow this movement and win against all the biggest threats. Hateful regimes, corruption, gun violence, Putin, domestic extremism, the two-party duopoly, apathy, indifference, hate, the dreaded tie in the NFL. So stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We are all vigilant from Egypt to Georgia, to Morocco, to Iran, from Arrested Development to Shervin Hajapur. from the young Iranian protesters to Ayman Mouyadine, to you. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening for 200 episodes. Thank you for listening. And thank you to all of you who made those 200 episodes happen. Down with Putin, Slava Ukraine. Women, life, freedom. Keep up the fight, Iran, and stay vigilant, America. I don't know,
1: sorry.
0: Righteous Media.